Oh, good morning, good morning, friends. If you will, grab a seat and grab your Bible and turn with me. Woo! That's up there. Turn with me to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. My name is Josh. I'm one of the ministers. Welcome to Clear Creek. So glad that you're with us this morning. You've picked a great day to be here because we're going to begin a new series called How Disciples are made, how disciples are made. I don't know if you've heard this story, but years ago I heard a story of a little eight-year-old boy. One day this eight-year-old kid comes up to his dad and he asks this one question. It's a question that every parent feels a little nervous about. But here's the question he says, dad, where did I come from? Now, some of you know exactly the feeling in the pit of your stomach when your kid asks that question and the dad felt, he's like, oh no. I don't know how to talk to my eight-year-old son about the birds and the bees. In fact, I wouldn't talk to him about it. He seems so young, but he has asked, I guess I'll tell him. And so the dad, for the next 20 minutes, goes into detail after detail about how babies are made. And as he talks, his little boy's eyes just get bigger and bigger and bigger, the size of saucers, until finally the dad, after 20 minutes of going on and on, says, and that son is where you came from. And the little boy, he's stunned to silence until a moment later he goes, wow, my friend Billy came from Florida. (laughs) Overshot the runway there. Kind of an interesting question though, like where is it, not where did I come from, but maybe a better question as followers of Jesus Christ is this, where did we come from? What was the moment? Who were the people? What were the things that brought you to the family of God where you said, I was without a family and now I've been brought into the heavenly family of God? Where were you? Where was I? What did God do? Our mission statement as a church is to reach the next person for Jesus. Go ahead and put that up, Phil. To reach the next person for Jesus because we believe a life well lived is a life that simply says, Yay, God, do you want to know God? We believe that heaven will be at its best when heaven is full. And our prayer is that God, through his power and his work, will give us opportunity to simply share our faith with other people. Now, our vision, what we might call our long-term vision or goal, is really to reach 10% of our city in the next 20 years. Now, that's a big goal, and some of you may say, well, why? And we're going to talk about how we're going to do that over the next few weeks, but but here's the bigger thing, why? Well, experts will tell us that 10% of any group that is wildly committed to a particular goal has an outsized influence over the remaining 90%. And so for us, we believe if we can, by God's grace, help introduce 10% of our city to Jesus, they in turn will help us reach the 90% because we really do believe that God wants to save every soul in Chattanooga. And so our heart is to say, how do we do that effectively? And so that is what this series is about. So next week, just a little preview, we're gonna talk about The three parts of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And good news, if you've ever felt overwhelmed or unclear of how to be a follower of Jesus, the text we're going to read from, the three things it shows us are so easy or so simple, I should say. It will take away all of the confusion. And I believe you will walk out of here going, I can do this. We're going to talk about over the next few weeks, how do we grow in our faith? And what are the obstacles to engaging our faith? And how can we maneuver around them through the power of God's spirit? We're also going to talk about how do we share our faith with our friends and family because God loves your friends and family and wants them to know him. But that's the question, isn't it? Where did we come from? That's what we're going to talk about today. Where did you come from? Where did I come from? And the good news, Jesus answers that question beautifully 
in his last words as recorded by Matthew in Matthew chapter 28. I'm going to ask you to stand this morning as we read these beautiful words of Jesus. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 16, says this, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but, notice this weird phrase, some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Therefore go and make disciples. Let's pray together. Father, as you showed the original disciples, now show us where we came from and where you want us to go. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. All right. This is the last thing Jesus says as recorded by the Apostle Matthew, which begs the question, what will he record? What words were so important that if you forgot everything else that Jesus said or did, he says, I want you to remember this. Because isn't it true, sometimes the last thing someone says are the things you remember most? So what does he say? He doesn't tell us how to live a happy life. He doesn't tell us how to make more money. He doesn't tell us how to get along with our in-laws or that special someone. He says, make disciples. Now, it's not that those other things don't matter to God, but when life comes to an end, the one thing that will matter most is, did I, did you share the good news of Jesus with those God loves, but those who do not yet know him? Go and make disciples. Now, there's a strange little phrase, though, in there. Did you see it? It says, when they gathered, some worshiped, but some doubted. Now, this is strange. After all, I'd be thinking, really? Didn't you see Jesus die and then go in the tomb? And now you see him in the flesh. You can touch him. He is there physically. How in the world can you doubt the resurrection? But notice, it doesn't say that they doubted the resurrection. Rather, this word doubt refers to the idea that they were not fully committed to Jesus as Lord of their lives. Now, Let's put it this way. Um, how many of you, show of hands, how many of you went swimming at some point this summer? Any, anyone else get a little wet? Fantastic. All right, you'll know this moment. You go to the swimming pool, you go to the lake, you go somewhere, and the water, let's just say it's not quite warm enough. Some of us, when we come to the cold water, we go, Whew. go to the shallow end of the pool, and we tiptoe in. That's cold, that's cold. Yeah! And you ease into the water. There are others of you in this room, you go, it's going to hurt no matter how quickly or slowly I get in. So you go to the deep end of the pool, you jump, kabloosh, all in. You're all in. That's what I want you to get from this phrase right here. Some worshiped, some were all in, but others eased in. They were still saying, I kind of like him, but I'm not sure how wet I want to get. I'm not sure how far into this relationship I want to be. I kind of like this half in, half out approach. So he says to those who are in that in-between, he says, I just need to remind you, all authority has been given to me, Jesus says. And notice he does not say some authority or some future authority. He says all authority in heaven and on earth and under the earth, which, time out, friends. 
This passage should give you rock solid confidence and comfort as a follower of Jesus. Because it's easy when you look around and if you see things going south in our culture or in your neighborhood or anywhere else, it's easy to think, oh no, God has lost control. Friends, Jesus has all authority right now. Jesus is not under the control or the whim of any person or group. He is King of kings and Lord of lords right now. So what will Jesus do with that authority? He will say, make disciples. If you don't remember anything else, make disciples. Now, here's the thing. When it comes to this authority business, if I'm honest, I don't always like the idea of someone else having authority over me. Don't raise your hand if you feel the way. You can just give me a little wink if you feel the same way. In fact, I think I know that all of us get a little upset when we talk about authority. After all, when we talk about someone having all authority, that's a king. And we left England because we didn't want to be under a king. We now have autonomy, individual rights. And even the leaders who do have some authority over us, we don't believe it. We don't like it. We ignore it. You say, how do I know that I ignore authority that's over us? Two words, stop signs. Any of you have that stop sign in your neighborhood, you come up to it. And because you know that the cross street, almost no car ever goes by. You live in the neighborhood, you know the kind of traffic. And so when you come to that stop sign, you don't stop. It's more of a suggestion sign, right? You come up to it and you just kind of ease on through. Now listen, if a car's coming, you'll stop. You'll give them the right of way. But if not, why stop and kill your momentum? They're, you're not hurting anyone. Just keep on going. At least that's what we tell the police officer when he pulls us over for running the stop sign, right? So we tell the stop sign when we'll stop. Or we go to the doctor and the doctor says, you got to lose weight. What do we do? We leave the doctor's office and we're like, I don't need to lose weight. Who is he to tell me I need to lose weight? It's not like they've been to medical school. Or some of us, if you're like me, there's some times, and I'm embarrassed to say this, but some days I run my life the way that corporations want, run their businesses. I have a board of directors or a board of advisors. I've told you this before, haven't I? There are people whose influence I invite into my life who I'll say, what do you think about this subject? Or how should I handle that? And one of those voices is Jesus. And so someone hurts or offends me. And so I come to Jesus. Jesus, what should I do in this moment? And Jesus says, if someone slaps you by, on the cheek, turn the other cheek. And I say... Thank you, Jesus. I appreciate your opinion. Now, let's hear from someone else. Let's hear from John Wick. John, what should I do? And he just goes, shh, shh, let's go. What happens is we treat God's authority like multiple choice sometimes. But he says all authority is his. And what he says now is go and make disciples. Now, again, I get nervous when I hear that phrase because when I hear go and make disciples, immediately my mind races to this image of me boarding a plane to go overseas to some African village or go deep into some jungle to share the good news of Jesus. And I go, I don't like mosquitoes. I don't want to do that. But that's not the image that we should have from this text because that little word go in the Greek language is not just go, like get out, go across the ocean. Rather, the best translation of that little word we translate go is actually as you go. As you go to the grocery this week, make disciples. As you go to the bank, make disciples. Some of you are going, I do electronic checking, so I don't ever go to the bank. Fine. As you go to the ball field, make disciples. As you visit your in-laws, make disciples. As you go, 
make disciples. See, the follower of Jesus understands every place you go, every person you meet, every moment where you speak into their life and they hear it in a fresh way is not coincidence, it's divine providence. God has prepared you and prepared these places so that as you step into the mission field, he will use you to share the good news of his risen son, the savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, if you want to go on a mission trip, a short-term mission trip, you don't have to get on a boat or play in anything else. Just pick a place in your city, go to the local coffee shop for one hour, sit there and say, God, show me someone that I can bless or speak your name to. At the end of the hour, congratulations, You've just finished a short-term mission trip. As you go, make disciples. And it's an interesting thing. He says, of all nations, not just of a few places, but nations. That word is the uh, Greek word ethnos. We get our word ethnic or ethnic groups from. In other words, God cares for every people, every group, every stripe and shape and color because every person is beloved by God and and God wants them to be with him forever. The ministry of Jesus Christ was not just to some, but he sends us to all because God loves all people. This is good news. No one is beyond the reach of Jesus Christ. I was talking to a buddy of mine before service and we were just sharing how grateful we are that God would save us. You are not beyond the grace of Jesus Christ. For when he came, he said, I am dying for all that all may live. Go, make disciples of all nations. So how do we do that? Jesus gives us the answer. Notice, number one, he says, by baptizing them. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, that's a strange thing to say when talking about disciples. Now, I know for us, since this is what we do, we go, there's nothing weird about it. Consider with me. The first thing he says is put them in water. Why? That word baptize is the Greek word baptizo. Baptizo. Everyone, if you will, let's just say baptizo. One, two, three. Baptizo. And that word, go ahead and put these words up. It means to immerse, to cover, to bury. So if you and I were walking down a first century road one day and we see a procession of people coming and they're crying and they're wailing and you say, what's going on? And this old woman points to a casket and says, I'm burying my husband today. You say, what are you doing? And she says, I am baptizoing him. You're going to go baptize him in water? No, I'm burying him. I'm covering him. I'm immersing him. He's going fully under. That is the image of baptism, that we are covered fully, totally. In other words, baptism means that we are all in. This is that picture I told you about. There's not one part of your life that is outside of the grace of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the authority of Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Every part of you is covered in, drowning in his love and presence. You're completely covered. Now, the old joke goes that in the churches of Christ, most of us, when we're baptized, all of our bodies go in, but those in the CFC... We hold our wallets out of the water. After all, we'll get baptized, but we don't want to baptize it. Jesus says, all of you is to be covered. Everything that you have, all that I've given you to steward, you are covered in me. First, we make disciples by baptizing. And then second, did you notice? And teaching them. Not just teaching them in general terms, but notice it's teaching them to obey 
everything I have commanded you. The mark of discipleship is obedience to Jesus Christ. Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, if you love me, obey my commandments. And so when we teach, we teach for the purpose of personally obeying and inviting others to obey as well. Now, here's the thing. Most people don't do better because they just don't know better. The reason I don't behave sometimes is because I don't know better. All of us have children and there comes that moment when your child does something silly and you're like, oh, why are you doing that? And it clicks. You're like, oh, it's because no one has ever told you better. We teach to help people take their next step with Jesus. Discipleship is learning day by day to be a little bit more like Jesus. And this is the reason we do not condemn people and throw stones at people where they are. Because the fact is, I don't know. And you don't know where people came from. We see where they are maybe in the moment of their journey, but we don't see where they have come from. It is so easy for Josh and maybe for you to look at someone and go, oh, they should be doing so much better. Really? I mean, after all this time, really? But if I only saw where they came from and you saw where they came from, we would instead go, yay, God. Wow, that you do so many good things in this person's life. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And then Jesus ends with this beautiful promise when he says, and I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, we read that last verse and we think Christ is with me. No matter what, wherever I go, he is with me. But that verse is contingent upon the previous verses. It's As we do this, he is with us in a unique and powerful way. In fact, the way that this passage is written, you could say, go and make disciples in front of every phrase. So, go and make disciples and baptize. Go and make disciples and teach them. Go and make disciples obeying everything. Go and make disciples and I will be with you to the very end of the age. In other words, God is with us in a uniquely powerful way as we do what he has told us to do. Now, I want to be careful here. If you are in Christ, then Christ is in you. God is with you. But God shows up in a unique way and he promises to be with you in a uniquely powerful way as you go and make disciples. Which means what we do in here is important, yes. But you will experience the unique presence of God, not as much in here, but as you go out there. And I don't know about you, but I want more with God and of God. And it's as we go that God promises to be with us in a uniquely powerful way. So how did we get here? We got here because the disciples did what Jesus told them to do. They went. And if you know the rest of the story, it's a beautiful moment there at the end of Matthew 28. Go and make disciples. And then Luke, in his account of the early church in Acts chapter 1, he picks up the story from there. And he says, also in that moment, Jesus tells his followers, you stay in the city of Jerusalem until God sends the Holy Spirit on you, empowering you. And then at that point, Jesus ascends to heaven. Now the disciples, as you can imagine, were freaked out. They run down the mountain. They go back to the city of Jerusalem, up into the upper room, lock the doors, and they begin to pray. They are terrified because they've been given this mandate and they don't know how to do it. Have you ever felt that way? If so, listen to the next part. They prayed. 
And God kept his promise. He sent the Holy Spirit on them in power. The Spirit came on them and empowered them. And they left that upper room, no longer fraidy cats, but emboldened. And they began to share the good news of Jesus. Peter goes out into the city square and he begins to proclaim the news of Jesus to the crowds that had gathered in the city of Jerusalem. These people had come from all around the known world for Passover and Pentecost festivals. So they're there and he begins to say, Jesus is Lord, you killed him. But God raised him from the dead. Repent, believe, you will be saved. And they did. And on that day, 3,000 people came to Christ. And the church began in Acts chapter 2. But it doesn't stop there. For in Acts chapter 8, you have a man named Philip who goes and he comes alongside an Ethiopian man. The Ethiopian man hears of Jesus, believes in Jesus, is baptized. And then he takes the gospel of Jesus Christ back with him down into Africa. Then in Acts chapter 10, you have this incredible moment where God calls Peter to share the gospel with a Gentile man named Cornelius. And while Peter is still preaching to Cornelius, after all, sometimes preachers get a little long-winded, right? Don't say amen. Don't you do it. As he's talking and talking, God brings the Holy Spirit onto Cornelius and his household. And Peter, blown away by this outpouring of God, says, if God will give his spirit, how can we withhold baptism? And he baptizes Cornelius and his entire family. And now we see God's stamp that even Gentiles can be saved. That's you and that's me, friend. Peter, he goes back to Jerusalem, but before he even gets there, word has already reached the Jews in Jerusalem that God is saving Gentiles, but uh uh-oh, Peter didn't circumcise this Gentile. You got to do that, don't you? So Peter arrives, they say, did you circumcise him? And Peter says, he's 42 years old, I wasn't going to try that. Something like that, that's in the original language. And he goes on to say... God gave the spirit, so we baptize the new mark of covenant, the new sign that you are with God, the new moment that everything changes. It's not circumcision, it's this thing called baptism. And the church has a real hard time in this because circumcision was so fundamental to who they were. So they gather together in Acts 15 for this council in Jerusalem. Can God really save Gentiles? And does he use baptism as the sign, not circumcision? And they come through the spirit's leading to the answer, yes. And in A.D. 39, something began to happen. The church began to explode in ways. Gentiles invited into the fellowship of God. And it has not stopped ever since. Let me take you through just history now. Buckle up. This will move fast. In A.D. 42... Mark goes to Egypt. In AD 49, Paul goes to Turkey. In 51 AD, Paul heads to Greece. In 52 AD, the apostle Thomas heads to India. In 54 AD, Paul heads on his third missionary journey. And he's already writing the book of Romans, which says that wherever the gospel is preached, people come to faith because God's invisible qualities are plain to be seen. In 174 AD, the first Christians are reported in Austria. By 280 AD, we have written evidence of rural churches emerging in northern Italy. Now, here's why that is so cool. Up until this point, for about the first 200 years of church history, churches were in the cities. They were not in the, com- in the country. In fact, you've heard the word pagan. The word pagan just means someone who lives outside of the city. 
So now, in 280, we have evidence that the gospel has now been spread to the pagans outside of the cities. By 350 AD, 31.7 million people are disciples. That is 53% of the Roman Empire. By 432 AD, Patrick heads to Ireland. Now, we celebrate this every year by wearing green and pinching each other. Weird, but we do it. In 596, Gregory the Great sends Augustine and a team of missionaries to what is now England to reintroduce the gospel. The missionaries settle in Canterbury and baptized 10,000 people in just two years. Oh, that God would save people. In 635 AD, the first Christian missionaries arrive in China. In 740 AD, Irish monks reach Iceland. In 900 AD, missionaries now reach Norway. By 1200, the Bible is available in 22 different languages. In 1498, the first Christians are reported in Kenya. In 1554, there are 1,500 converts to Christ in what is now known of as Thailand. In 1630, the English Puritans who sought religious freedom from the Church of England arrived in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And then in 1801, hang in there with me, we're almost done. In 1801, a Presbyterian minister named Barton W. Stone participated in a revival in Cane Ridge, Kentucky, which saw hundreds of people saved and an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It prompted him to start a new movement so that by 1832, Stone's Christian movement joined with Alexander Campbell's Disciples and Church of Christ movement to form the restoration movement of which we belong. In 1933, the Northside Church of Christ in Chattanooga, Tennessee, helped a group of four women begin holding church in their home. A year later, that church had grown to 12 members, and that church eventually took the name Hamill Road Church of Christ, and later named Hickson Church of Christ. And in 2008, We moved to this property and renamed ourselves the Clear Creek Church of Christ. And we don't stop there because the story doesn't end with you or me, friends, does it? Since then, God, by his grace, has given us opportunities to serve others and reach others. So in the teens, we adopted a ministry to help reach women who are on the streets, know Jesus, know love, know life, and find hope. In 2017, we partnered in planting City Collective Church in downtown Chattanooga to reach those who might not come to this church building. By the way, this past Sunday, City Collective dedicated seven children and 22 kids, meaning the moms and dads said, we want our kids to know Jesus and we will raise them to know him. Isn't that cool, church, that the place that you and I got to be part of sharing the gospel, they're now sharing the gospel to the next generation. And now, as of this year, we support missionaries in Turkey, Lithuania, North Africa, and mission points in places like Haiti. Do you understand when someone says, where did we come from? The answer is this. Disciples who shared the good news of Jesus with other disciples, who shared it with others, to others, to others. How did you get here? A disciple told you about Jesus. So here's the... The last question I'll ask you today, where will the next disciples come from? Where will they come from? Yes, God is at work around the globe in far off places, but where will disciples in Chattanooga come from? I was talking to a a buddy of mine who's just an avid 
Alabama football team guy. I mean, he's just all Alabama. Now, we won't talk about his salvation for a moment here. We'll get to that later. But his boys love Alabama football as well. And I said, tell me about that. He said, well, hey, I never had to go to my boys. I never sat them down and said, we are an Alabama football family. If you're to be in this family, you're going to love Alabama. You're going to bleed crimson. He said, I never had to say that because my boys grew up in a home where I loved Alabama. I talked about Alabama. I demonstrated it by my colors and the weird ways I behaved when the football game was on. They were in because they saw it modeled by a disciple of Alabama. Where will the next disciples come from, church? Yes, it'll come from other places. But may the next generation of disciples in Chattanooga, at least many of them, may they come from you and me as we share the good news of Jesus with those who need to know it. Let's pray together. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm not going to embarrass you, but I want to ask you a question. Before we talk about how others will know, do you know? Is Jesus your Lord? Is he your rabbi, your teacher? Are you a disciple who follows him? See, that's the first step before there's a next is to say yes to Jesus, giving him your life in baptism. If you don't know him, don't leave today without that assurance, without that relationship. You find me in the lobby after service and we will talk about what it means to take your next step with Jesus. But for the rest of us, if you are in Christ, who is that person that is coming to mind right now? Who's that neighbor, that family member, that friend, the person on the ball field? Who's that person that God brings to mind that he wants you to share the good news with? Father, we thank you that you sent someone to share the good news with us. And now as your disciples, that we share the good news with those around us so that in Five, ten, twenty, a hundred years from now, heaven will be far more full, not because of our might or our strength, but because you invited us to partner with you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.